The city of Baghdad had once been the center of the world. Its leader, the Abbasid Khalif, was the most powerful person on earth, controlling a vast empire from his capital, which was a city of unprecedented splendor and riches. Two centuries after its founding, however, Baghdad was little more than a puppet, a city to be captured by outside warriors and its caliph used as a pawn in their struggles. It was a time of disintegration for the mighty Abbasid Caliphate. But a new order was about to be born out of the chaos in the Muslim world. For better or worse, a new, powerful, Sunni Turkish state would come to dominate the Caliphate. And that is our story today, so please stay tuned. It had disintegrated into a sorry state of competing emirates. The Khalis technically kept their positions, but in fact competing princes and generals found it useful to have a Khalif under their control to bestow legitimacy on them. And the Khalifs did have a rich life of luxury in Baghdad, but they had really lost their political and military power. It was a sad state of affairs, but we've talked about the process that led up to this. Well, this situation is only going to partially resolve itself. It's going to eventually turn into a system where we have dominance by Sunni Turks, which will last right up into the 20th century, when finally Arab nationalism arises and triumphs in the Arab world. But from here on out, it's going to be fairly messy. So, meanwhile, and we're talking about the 900s AD here. If you remember the Shiite Fatimid dynasty in North Africa, with its capital in Cairo, had arisen as the major empire in the Muslim world. While in El Andalus, what is today Spain and Portugal, the Umayyad Emirate, which would later declare itself to be a caliphate as well, was another major rival. Now, although this was a situation of political disunity and constant fighting, you know, we talked about the glory days when there was one Muslim empire from Spain to the borders of China, and it is now fragmented. The Muslim world was still quite rich economically and culturally, and it still supported the greatest concentrations of scientists, philosophers, and artists in the world, and at this time produced some of the grandest architectural works in the world, many of which still stand today as wonders of the world. So we have to remember that while you know we tend to think that a glorious, flourishing civilization should be associated with a mighty, stable political empire, that's usually not the case. Often political, military power, and the scientific, artistic world, they're not in sync. But in any case, we're going to talk today in some fairly broad strokes about how we get to this time of disunity in competing minor states to a time of relative stability, where we have basically Turkish Sunni control in the east of the empire, and how that is going to affect the religious and philosophical ideas in the Muslim world. Now, 
If you were to listen to a lot of the lectures in the West or things you find on YouTube, you would think that one day the Muslims just woke up and decided they hated science and then decided to have a huge conservative backlash. And since then, that takes us right up to ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Well, the reality, as we've discussed, is there was a whole lot already going on and a whole lot more is going to go on to really shake this empire, to fragment it. We're going to add the Crusades, Mongol invasions, and you can see why there is that sort of conservative reaction is going to build. And so a good time to start looking at this, I mean, it's a gradual process of change, but let's start with the year 935. Now, as we said, we had a number of competing emirates. The caliph is really little more than the ruler of Baghdad at this time. But in that year, the Abbasid caliph welcomes in a force of Persian Shiites, who are known as the Buyids, and he appoints their leader, who will take the name Muaz Adawla as the governor. And effectively, he's handing over control to him. Now, the caliph retains his honors, he retains his title, he particularly retains his religious significance. Uh, but really, control of the state and control of the military uh, goes to this Buyid ruler. Now, Muaz Adawla was from northern Iran in an area along the Caspian Sea, and his people, the Buyids, controlled much of Persia, Iraq, and Central Asia. Now, they didn't control this in one solid empire. Uh, basically, there were separate emirates, in which case each of the the leading branches of the family controlled them, and this was fairly typical. Decentralized rule is more the case, particularly in the Central Asian area where populations are mobile. We don't have what you see in Europe, this very strict system of dynasties and rule passing from father to son of the entire uh, community. But in any case, the Buyids were a very strong, what is going to become a dynasty. Now, a little bit about them. The Buyids were Shiites. And they were from what is today the largest branch of the Shia, which is the Twelvers. And this is because they believe in 12 Imams. But as we've mentioned in previous episodes, at this particular time in history, in the 900s, the Twelvers were not the largest or the most powerful. It was in fact the Ismaili Shias, and this is the sect to which the Fatimids belonged. And the Fatimids at this time are the most powerful and most stable empire in the Middle East, and remember they're controlling a dynasty uh, which is basically in charge of all of North Africa. Now because of this uh, fairly odd situation, we have the Buyids coming into the Abbasid Caliphate, which is essentially still a Sunni Caliphate. Uh, their competitors are Ismaili Shia, and they are personally Twelver Shia. And so it's a fairly delicate balance. And this is probably the reason why uh, the Buyids were very tolerant on religious matters. I mean, this tends to be the case if you're particularly in a minority and you're ruling, uh, you don't want to push things too hard. They were surrounded by a number of different sects, and particularly, they didn't want trouble from the Sunni population. So remember, they are coming in ostensibly at the invitation of the Abbasid Caliph to 
pretend, supposedly work for him. I mean, they're being deputized to work for him in an area in which most of the population is Sunni. And so to maintain that legitimacy, obviously you can't be too strict on imposing your Twelver Shiite doctrines, and they weren't. So in any case, although the Buyids themselves were Shiite, they did not impose Shiite religious law. And in fact, for most people, it were Sunni jurists, Sunni scholars uh, who were in charge of the legal system, and uh, Sunnis who were running the major schools. But beyond their political motivations, the Buyids actually seem to be genuinely interested in religious diversity. Above all else, they were proud Persians. They really revived a lot of the old Persian customs and traditions, and later on they would even take on the Persian title of Shah. And we know Shah is basically the title for a king in, in Persian. One chief, actually, in the Buyid family wanted to revive a Zoroastrian empire, and he planned to do so by conquering Baghdad, but he was defeated. So there was a lot of religious diversity within this family, within this uh, people that the Buyids represented. Even beyond that, the Buyid shahs, as they became, they would patronize Zoroastrian priests and celebrate the Zoroastrian festivals. At one point, the Shah himself oversaw the Zoroastrian annual rituals in conjunction with a high priest, and they stressed their lineage from the pre-Islamic Persian rulers. Now, of course, among the caliphs, everything is always going back to the prophet Muhammad. They were stressing their lineage back to, I mean, essentially these non-Islamic rulers centuries before Islam. Now, if this sounds a bit strange in a Muslim country, it also sounds very similar to the kinds of things that the last Shah of Iran was doing, which led in part to the Iranian Revolution at the end of the 1970s. And being old myself, I remember that. I mean, this is what he was doing. He was stressing his lineage to the ancient Shahs and to ancient Persia. And that did not sit well with the Muslim population of his country. And let's face it, it wouldn't sit well with the Christian population of the United States, say, to be reviving rituals from well before Christian times. That led to a revolution in 1979 that undid the Shahs of Iran, and a similar kind of thing is going to happen here. Basically, the idea is that things have very much devolved politically. There's a sort of a lot of decentralization, and we now have a leadership which is very, very loose on religious matters. I mean, technically, the caliph is still the caliph, and these buyids are working for him, but you can see we have a situation where, really, we have a mix of religions. We have a lot of non-Islamic things going on at this time, uh, and <clears throat> there really isn't that strong central control. Well, just as that led to a backlash in Iran, in the 1970s, it will lead to a backlash here in what is the Abbasid territory about a century after the Buyids take over. And that's what we're going to talk about, is how we get to that point. But we still have a century to go.
since appointed a number of Christians to senior posts in the empire, including being the viziers of different states. Now, effectively, they were the ones running those states because, as we said, the vizier is like a minister, just like the Buyids were technically ministers for the Khalif. But it's their people who are actually running things for these figureheads who are the Abbasids. So a number of important states in this empire are being run by Christians. And uh, the Zoroastrians also had important positions. At one time, the finance minister who controlled all the money in the uh, caliphate was a Zoroastrian as well. Now, they did this probably to counterbalance the power of the Sunnis. Uh, If the majority of your people are of a certain group, you want to really empower all the other minority groups to balance them. We see this in modern times as well. Even some of the more oppressive rulers in the Middle East were fairly tolerant on religious matters, particularly if they came from a religious minority. We see several examples of this in the modern Arab world. And the perfect example, really the worst example, is the regime in Syria, the Assad regime, and its current leader, Bashar al-Assad, of course, is the most brutal ruler that you can find in the world today. I mean, he's really a, a war criminal. However, because the Assads are from a minority, uh, they're Alawites, which is a very small minority, uh, far outnumbered by the Sunni majority in Syria, they are fairly tolerant on religious minorities and actually have the support, or did for a while, of a number of religious minorities such as the Christians in that country. The same thing was true of Saddam Hussein, who of course was another brutal person, but the majority in Iraq, as you probably know, is Shia, and he was Sunni. And so he was fairly tolerant on religious minorities, and particularly the Christian population of Iraq supported him to a large degree. Now, you could get into all kinds of trouble for political reasons, and so he imprisoned and tortured thousands of them for political reasons as well. But I can remember visiting Syria back under Hafez al-Assad, the father of Bashar, and it was a very oppressive place. It was a place where people were afraid to talk, people spoke in whispers, but one thing they were very, very proud of was the religious freedom. And they were proud of talking about how much freedom that Christians and Jews had in their country. Uh, The other thing they were very proud of was talking about was the black market and the corruption and how you could get anything done for money. But in a place where people didn't dare speak of politics at all, uh, they were very happy to talk about religious freedom because the ruling elite was from a minority, and so they balanced out the majority. Now, this is not to compare the Buyids with uh, tyrants like the Assads or Saddam Hussein. That's not the case, but the political situation is the same. They were in a position where they had a Sunni majority, and they were trying to keep stability, which had been very hard to find in recent decades. And so they did not push their Shiite 12 or ideology. And in fact, they were very tolerant of other ideologies. Well, the greatest of the Buyid leaders was Adad Adawla. And he was born the year after the Buyids took over Baghdad. Now, you're noticing that all of them have the word Adawla in their name. Dawla means the state. And so Adad was the pillar of the state. 
Moiz was the strengthener of the state, and they all have some uh, title that has something to do with the states. Like the Abbasid Khalifs, these are not the names that they are born with, but these are titles that are given to them ostensibly by the Khalif, but I mean, actually they come and tell the Khalif what name to give them. But the fact that they have Dawla in their name means that they are specifically deputized with the political side of things. The Khalif was always addressed as Amir al-Mu'minin, which means the commander or prince of the faithful. A, a Mu'min is a, a faithful person, a believer. And of course, they took on religious titles like the rightly guided, a Rashid, or the victorious. Right? They would take on these titles. But the idea was that they were the rulers of all the Muslims, all the faithful. Now, the Buyids are specifically getting titles that say, you know, strengthener of the state, meaning you're in charge of the government, you know, not the religion, not the people. Now, of course, they are running things, but it's limiting their power, at least ostensibly, and still keeping the Abbasid Khalif in the most honorable position. Anyway, Adad al-Dawla would rule for 34 years, which if you've been following this, you know is a very long period of rule in uh, the Muslim world at this time. And he was very successful in battle. At the height of his reign, princes from Syria all the way down to Oman and into Central Asia acknowledged him as their leader. Now, this is not the same thing as being a caliph in charge of the entire state and you deputize people and send governors out to regions. What this is saying is that these other princedoms, which had their own princes or emirs, are paying tribute to Adad al-Dawlar, or essentially acknowledging him as being the stronger. Within his territory, he suppressed most of the internal rebellions, and very importantly, he brought the army under control. As you've seen all along, we've had these issues with Turkish military being brought in to be the main force, really, in the army, but conflicts between the Turks and the Persians in the army had been a major source of instability. And we tend to think of it in the United States or Great Britain today, where people take an oath to serve in the military of the nation, and they put that loyalty above everything else. This is not the case. You have people who are essentially like mercenaries, and if they don't get their pay, if they don't like the political situation, they may turn against you. Well, Adad al-Dawla was successful in bringing these conflicts under control and getting a handle on the army. So this became a time of great stability during his rule, and we have seen there has not been a lot of stability. Now, he used one of the oldest forms of diplomacy to cement relations, and that, of course, is marriage. His daughter married the Abbasid Khalif. Both he and his children married rulers of many of the other princedoms under his control, and that was a way of cementing things. And he even concluded a 10-year peace treaty with the Byzantines, who was, again, the major competing non-Muslim empire in the region, the one they've never been able to defeat. 
he made a peace treaty with them, which was still in force when he died. Had he lived, he may have been able to renew this and keep it going. So you can see we're talking about a time of great stability. So we talk about a Buyid dynasty, and we talk about them ruling much of the Middle East, even though technically they are really supposedly agents of the Caliph. Well, on the economic side, the stability that Adadadawla brought had a positive effect on the economy, such that the tax revenue is said to have tripled during this time. And he didn't just take this money and waste it, he invested a lot of it back into the empire. He is known for massive building projects. Now, he concentrated them not so much in Baghdad, although he did build a lot in Baghdad, but his capital was in the city of Shiraz, which is in northeastern Iran today. But he built a lot in Baghdad and Basra and throughout the realm. The largest hospital in the world at this time was the Al-Aduddi, which obviously is named after him, and that was in Baghdad. He was a great patron of the arts as well. And what's interesting is despite his Persian origins, and he really loved and promoted Persian culture, in terms of language, he was partial to Arabic over Persian. And he had studied in his youth under one of the most famous Arabic grammarians of the time. And so he promoted the arts, the poetry, the writing in Arabic. And this, again, is a continuation of the long legacy that the Umayyads had way back at the beginning of their caliphate when they imposed Arabic as the language of the state. And this is really the glue that holds this empire together. Of course, Islam is the main thing that holds the Muslim world together. But the fact that they have one language and scholars who are writing in Spain, who are writing in Persia, who are writing in Cairo, are all writing in the same language really makes this one community that can communicate among itself, and that's very important. Well, despite his love of Arabic, though, Adadadawla revived a lot of old Persian traditions, and particularly he started to use the Persian term Shah and Shah, which means king of kings. Now, that obviously has some pretty definite pre-Islamic connotations. And now, remember, he's technically working for the Abbasid Khalif, and his name still says he's part of the Dawla. But he's having people refer to him as the King of Kings. And so that is not sounding like someone who is subordinate to anyone. And in reality, he wasn't, of course. Adad Dawla was the most powerful man in the Middle East, and he pretty much told the Caliph what to do. Now, although he was very tolerant on religion, just like the others before him, and he promoted and employed a lot of non-Muslims, he did invest a lot and supported a lot of Shiite scholars, and he restored a lot of the Shiite shrines in the centers of pilgrimage, particularly at Najaf and Karbala, which are two of the largest pilgrimage sites in the world today. But the main thing here is he's a guy who had a lot of money, he had a lot of time and a lot of power, and he had the stability to really invest in this empire. So this time of Adadadawla in the Buyid rule becomes another 
golden age in Islamic history. If, say, the time of al-Ma'mun is a, the major spike, this is another spike, and there will be more that follow. control things are sometimes known as the Persian century or the Persian interlude because this is a time when they being Persians exercise the greatest power now as we've talked about this if we just stop and think about what this state was like it certainly doesn't sound like anybody's conception of a quote fundamentalist Islamist state this place is about as secular and diverse as you're going to find during the first millennium, certainly much more than anything that you have in Europe. So all these generalizations that we tend to see in the West, in the media, about how Muslim states, quote, have to be, and they're that way because of the Quran or something, they really don't match history. We find these times of great tolerance, great diversity, great promotions of the arts and sciences within the Muslim world, and the Buyid century is really just another example of this. But of course we know that this isn't going to last very long. So how do we go from this period of you know, relative flourishing and stability under the Buyids to uh, what is going to lead up to the Crusades? Well, if you have listened to any of the episodes of this series so far, you kind of know when the trouble is going to start. Adad al-Dawla was a great ruler, and he had a golden age when he ruled, but of course, when he died, the question becomes, who takes over? Well, he had two sons who wanted power, and when he died, to quote once again the great historian Hugh Kennedy, his successor was civil war. And he's another one, like Harun al-Rashid that we discussed before, Adan Adawla actually put instructions and orders to prevent this, but it didn't matter. I mean, once the old guy is dead and you have two people with their own entourages, with their own bases of support, they're going to try and grab power no matter what is down there in writing. This is a time of very short-lived and overlapping leaders and powers, and I'm not very interested in here in going through all the details of the very short reigns and the civil wars and rebellions that happened. Suffice to say that things are going to degenerate again into a period of great instability after the death of Adad Adawla. A key reason for this, though, is the nature of the Buyid state, if we can call it that. As we'd mentioned earlier, this was a, essentially a tribal system in which you had a lot of different branches and they controlled separate areas. When a strong leader like Adad Adawla emerges, he is able to bring everyone under his control and establish centralized leadership. But this is really a temporary thing based on the personality and the power of that leader. So when he dies and the succession battles continue, things degenerate again into a number of separate emirs in separate states who are competing with one another. So what was once the great caliphate 
becomes the Emirate of Iraq, which for most of this time was little more than Baghdad itself. And the situation is going to repeat. These Buyids, who were once the strongest power and who were invited in by the Caliph because they were strong, have now degenerated in, into a bunch of separate rulers, essentially separate emirs who are fighting with one another. Well, the weakness of the Buyid emirs, though, is actually good news for the Abbasid Caliphs, who are still around. As the power of the Buyids decreases, the power of the Caliphs can increase, and so they can go from being figureheads to being a little more than that. And as the Buyids are weakening, the Abbasid Caliphs are asserting themselves more and more. For a time, this is good. But what is happening is that power is basically balancing out. So we have a number of distinct Buyid emirs fighting for control. We have Abbasid Caliphs asserting themselves to some degrees. And again, we have trouble within the military from increasingly rowdy Turkish mercenaries who really control the power of the sword. Well, as we know, history abhors a power vacuum. And there were stronger states expanding on either side of this weakened collection of Buyid states that was occupying the shell of what was still technically the Abbasid Caliphate. We've talked in the previous episodes about the Shiite Fatimid Caliph, uh, based in North Africa. So that is one of the major competitors, and they are increasingly growing and spreading to the east and becoming more of a threat to the Abbasid realm. The other major power, though, that is growing on the other side is a Turkish state, which was vehemently Sunni, and they are going to come to dominate the next phase of history. This will essentially become the Great Seljuk Empire, which is consolidated in the year 1037, more or less, by a man named Tughril Bey, who originally came from Central Asia in what is Uzbekistan today. So we're talking about fairly far off. The nature of the tribes in that area was highly mobile. We're talking Central Asia was uh, largely an area which is horse country, where tribes even today move from place to place. This is the area from which the Mongols are going to come out in two centuries later. And this is an area that really supports decentralized rule by mobile tribes. But when a strong ruler arises, um, such as Genghis Khan will in the 13th century, they are able to consolidate rule over these various tribes. And that is what Tughril Bey does. He conquered and united a huge number of dispersed Turkish tribes in Central Asia in Persia. And the dynasty was named after its legendary founder, Seljuk. But Tughril was really the real founder of this. And just to give you some idea of his success, his control stretched from Afghanistan to modern-day Turkey. Sounds a lot like what was left of the Abbasid Empire, by the way. In the year 1071, the very important Battle of Manzikert, which is located in eastern Turkey today, gave the Seljuks control of about half of modern-day Turkey. This is where the Seljuks defeated the Byzantines, 
and took over most of what was left of the very slowly dying Byzantine Empire in the east. Again, they were never able to get to Constantinople and take it over, but they took over most of what was left of Turkey. Now, this encroachment and the defeat of the Byzantines at the Battle of Manzikert did get the attention of Europe, and this was the major reason for the First Crusade, which of course is going to usher in a whole other phase of European Islamic history, and of course we're going to talk about that in future episodes. But the point here is we are talking about a Turkish state from Central Asia that is controlling everything from Afghanistan up into the borders of Europe and scaring the Europeans so much that they launched the Crusades. This is a huge amount of control. So as much as the Buyids did, which was impressive, what the Seljuk Turks did is even more impressive, and they are going to be more permanent. And as part of this, Tughril would conquer Baghdad. Now, he had been looking for an excuse to do this. Baghdad is still an important city, and of course its symbolic importance is even greater. But it turned out that the Abbasids preferred to be occupied by a weak Buyid state that they could influence more than a powerful Turkish one. So they were not about to invite the Seljuks to come in if they could avoid it. But this really could not go on for long. The Seljuks were getting stronger and stronger, the Buyids were getting weaker and weaker, and finally, in the year 1055, the Abbasid Caliph relented and, for all essential purposes, invited Turgle Bey in. Now, this was not exactly a very voluntary invitation, but they realized they had to win the support of this dominant Seljuk Turkish force if they really wanted to stay in power. And as would be expected, the Abbasids continued to reign, they continued to be figureheads, they continued to be very important religious figures, but the Seljuks established firm control over this empire. Now this meant several things for the Muslim world at this time. For the first time in a long period, we now have two strong empires ruling over most of what we call the Middle East today. Up until this point, we've been talking about a number of small, dispersed states competing with one another in a fairly ambiguous situation of rule. Who was really in charge of any particular area varied from time to time. Now we have a Shiite Fatimid state in the west and a Sunni Seljuk state in the east. And of course, we have the very important separate emirate later Caliphate in Al-Andalus, which was still the Umayyads. But we have here in the Middle East two very strong empires. Now, they are not going to be very happy neighbors. The Seljuks had specifically declared their intent to go after the Fatimids. That's not eventually what's going to happen to the Fatimids because the Crusades are going to intervene and really shake things up. And at this point, we're talking in the time of 1070s. We're only 20 years away from the First Crusades, which is really going to shake things. But we have gone from an interlude with some fairly weak powers. In many cases, they're mixed Sunni-Shiite. We have Shiites who are dominating Sunnis who are technically in charge to two fairly strong states with very different religious orientations. We remember before this, 
The big divide was between the Ismaili Shia and the Twelver Shia, because the Buyids were Twelvers and the Fatimids were Ismailis. Now, if you were around in 900 AD, you might have been forgiven for predicting that the Shiites would eventually dominate the Muslim world. I mean, this is what it looked like. You had two fairly large states. One was an Ismaili Fatimid state, and one was essentially the Buyid Twelver state. It looked like the Shiites were about to dominate. Now, in a very short time, Shiites will be controlling very little. Two factors are really going to account for this. The first is the rise of the Seljuks, who control pretty much everything in the east and who are vehemently Sunni. The second factor is going to be the Crusades. If you have been following this series, you're probably sick of hearing me saying that such and such an event represented a major split between the Sunni and Shia. The reality is that that process of splitting was a long-term process. So, I mean, of course, the appointment of Abu Bakr as the first caliph, that was the first split. Uh, the death of al-Hussein at Karbala, that's another major split. And there's been several major splits that have occurred. But this is another of those major splits, because in the period that we've been talking about so far, and you've certainly noticed this, there is a lot of mixing between Sunni and Shia. We've got an Abbasid Khalif who is technically Sunni. He's got Shiites essentially running his empire. We've talked about some of the great scholars like Ibn Sina, who was probably born a Shia but is uh, considered a great figure by the Sunnis as well. And so there was a great deal of mixing in the Abbasid Caliphate at the time. Well, once the Seljuks take over, this is going to change. As I've said many times, the Turks were vehemently Sunni. And this period in which they take over is often referred to as the Great Sunni Revival in the East because they're going to impose a pretty strict adherence to Sunni doctrine. And they are very anti-Shia. As we've said, this has begun because they started out as mercenaries who were brought in by the Khalifs and they spent much of their time putting down Shia rebellions. And so this idea of fighting against the Shia becomes an important part of their ideology, so to speak. The coming Crusades and the Mongol invasions as well are also going to strengthen that drive for Sunni orthodoxy. I mean, when you are being attacked, particularly when you're being attacked in a religious war, this is going to push you towards the conservative side. And so all these are factors that are going to really enforce this Sunni control in the East. When we go back to the Fatimids, one of the key points about them was although they were Ismaili Shia, they did not force people to convert. And in fact, in many periods of the Fatimid dynasty, they really discouraged it. This has to do with the nature of the Ismaili doctrine. As we talked about earlier, Ismaili has a lot to do with the idea of secret knowledge or knowledge that only an elect know. So it's not something that you generally put out to the general populace. So the point is, although we have a Shiite dynasty in the Fatimids, you have a largely Sunni population. And so it's fairly easy, talking in very broad historical terms here, 
it's relatively easy uh, to switch that out for a Sunni leadership. And that's essentially what the great Salahadin or Saladin, as he's known in the West, is going to do. In some cases, it can be as easy as going to, say, Al-Azhar, which is the great university which was founded by Shia, and switching it over to a Sunni university, which it continues to this day. And so if it looked in 900 AD like the Shia had dominated the Muslim world, well, fast forward till about 1100 and it's going to look very, very different. Another big change is coming, however, in language and culture. The Seljuks had a very strong interest in Persian culture, and we've seen that the previous dynasties also were. It sounds a little bit strange because the Seljuks had replaced the uh, Persian Buyids, but the Turks adopted a lot of Persian court culture. Remember, the Turks were essentially nomadic from Central Asia, so they didn't have a really settled royal culture. But as they begin to adopt a more settled culture and, and adopt court culture, they adopt it from Persia, which is, of course, the empire that is right next to them. Arabic is, of course, the language of religion and religious law, but Persian becomes the language of government and increasingly of business. And this is true in the eastern part of the Muslim world that is dominated by the Seljuks. Therefore, the center of Arabic language culture becomes Cairo, the Fatimid capital. And one reason for this is we still have a lot of mobility of scholars. When we look at the great scholars of this period, they tended to move around the Muslim world. I mean, they would go from Baghdad to Spain. Almost all of them would pass through Cairo at some point. And so they had a lot of mobility. And if you were a great scholar in Arabic, the place to go now was Cairo. And this becomes really the center, of, particularly of Arab culture, and to some extent this becomes the cultural center of the Muslim world. And it's only going to increase. This will be the case at least up into the 20th century and through the late 20th century. Cairo really becomes the center of the Muslim world and it's, at one point is going to become the largest city in the world for a time. This doesn't really change until very recently in history, particularly with the rise of the oil wealth that strengthens the Gulf states. So today, most people associate the Middle East, Islam, and Arabic into one sort of package, one overlapping package. But we're entering a period in, of history here, right at the turn of the first millennium, and it's going to last really up until almost the second millennium, definitely last up until World War I, in which Turks are dominating the Middle East and dominating the Muslim world. Definitely they're dominating the eastern part of it, and they will come to dominate North Africa as well. In the Crusades, as much as we see them as wars against Arab Muslims, were launched primarily to stop the expansion of the Turks. And when we look at Europe, 
during later centuries, during the Renaissance, and they talk about the fear of the Muslims coming, they're primarily talking about the fear of the Turks, particularly the Ottoman Turks. So we have to bear that in mind, this idea that the Middle East, Islam, and Arab world are all one thing, uh, that's not it's not the case today, and it's certainly not even the, the dominant paradigm in this Middle Age period that we're talking about. Well, another change here is that Europe, which has been really flat on its back for centuries, is now back up and fighting. We're starting to see strong states, strong empires emerging in Europe, the first really modern empires emerging. Uh, if you take modern European history, as I did many years ago, a lot of those courses start in the year 800 with the Empire of Charlemagne being founded. And we talked about Charlemagne in the previous episode. But this is when the first really strong modern empire emerges. And they are going to push against the Muslim world. One place they are pushing very hard on the Muslim world is in Spain. And they are very slowly pushing the Muslims out of Spain, and that's a process that's going to last up until 1492. But another place where these two expanding civilizations or empires are going to bump heads is in the Middle East, particularly on the border, or right around Turkey today, and it's going to lead to something that we call the Crusades. Now this is very big picture, but we're talking about an expanding European Christian world and an expanding Sunni Turkish power, and they are going to bump heads. Another major difference from this time period is what we tend to think of as the Sunni and the Shiite parts of the Middle East today. Now they're almost reversed. If you asked anyone where is the Shiite world today, the first place they'll talk about primarily is Iran and the majority of Iraq being Shiite, the rest of it being Sunni. If we look at the world in this time, right about the, the end of the 11th century, the main Shiite territory is the Fatimids, which is primarily North Africa, and the area of Iran and Iraq is overwhelmingly Sunni Turkish. So the idea that these populations naturally grew up and have always been in those regions throughout history, of course, is not true. And this points to the fluidity of the Muslim world. And this is why we should avoid oversimplifying it, because we see things have changed greatly and they will continue to change uh, throughout history. Now finally, if we look at this time of conflict and rapid change, we might think it was a bad time for culture. But in fact, some of the most influential scholars and artists are going to come out of this environment of conflict and change. This, of course, is not unique to Muslim culture. Take, for example, Confucius, who's in a very different uh, part of the world, and is so famous for writing about an ordered society and what a good society should look like, he lived in a time which was exactly the opposite, and that's why he wrote about it. He lived in a time of total political turmoil. And so I think what happens is when we have a great civilization with a strong intellectual culture and it runs into political trouble and turmoil, you get a lot of very insightful analysis of that trouble. For example, the greatest Arab historian, Ibn Khaldun, 
wrote his works trying to deal with the decline and the defeat in the fragmentation of the Arab world. He was not writing about it at its, the height of its glory. But this turmoil is going to have an impact. As much as we can say that the arts and the sciences continue very well, there is definitely going to be an impact. The next seven centuries in the Islamic world are going to be dealing with what is essentially a defensive situation. Uh, Europe is going to continue to expand. Occupation from Asia, from Central Asia, is going to continue. The Arabs are going to be largely occupied by foreign powers right up until World War II. And so what we get is seven centuries of very active, flourishing Islamic thought, but it's dealing with a situation which is defensive. Before this, of course, we had ideas like Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb, the idea of Islam coming to dominate and bring a peaceful order to the entire world. Well, from here on out, scholars are going to have to deal with defeat, of losing territory, of being, in fact, occupied by foreign powers with other religions. And this is going to affect the type of scholarship that is produced. So, you know, commentators in the West like to make generalizations about Arab or Islamic culture or about the Middle East in general. And when they do try to explain something that happens, like something that happens in the 21st century, they'll tend to quote the Quran or quote a Hadith or go back and look at the very early community of Medina and explain it in that uh, sense. They usually leave out the much longer centuries that intervene between then and now, centuries of occupation and invasion. But at that time, Muslim scholars were writing volumes and volumes trying to deal with that situation. That has a big impact on what they write and the worldview that develops. So if you want to talk about something like jihad, which journalists in the West love to talk about, you really have to look at these centuries beginning from this period and particularly beginning from the Crusades. That's what we're going to be looking at in the future. Starting next week, we're going to look at one of the most influential conservative reactions to the rationalism of the philosophers. We're going to talk particularly about a man that scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson attributes the total fall of Islamic civilization to. If you think that must be a very influential scholar, we'll see whether he's right or not. We're going to be talking about how Islam deals with a very different world situation, a different political and military situation than it has faced in the past. And I think this is very important for understanding the world today. So we hope that you'll stay with us. Thank you very much for your kind attention, as always. Thank you for your reviews and your comments. That's what keeps us on the air. And we hope to see you in the future. Shukran jazeelan wa ma salama. Mm-hmm.